You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. Well, here we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and Paul is correcting this church. He is rebuking this church and giving them some, some very serious instructions regarding members of the church who are behaving in ways that have built a reputation for this church in Corinth amongst the pagan world that is super negative, where the pagans look at the Christians and go, you guys are doing things that we don't even do. You are doing things and behaving in such a way that we look at and go, man, we don't want to be a part of that. Listen, I didn't say this on Wednesday. I didn't include it as a part of that Bible study, but it's something I want us to turn our mind toward. You know, we have to be cautious. Those of us who are believers in Jesus, we have to understand that we are under a microscope in the world. Anytime someone makes a declaration of truth and says, this is true, the things that we are living by, the things that the teachings that we adhere to, the, the thing that we place our faith into, when you make a strong stand and confidently proclaim what you believe in, then you are under a microscope. People are going to watch you and they're going to see if the things that you say and do match up. And so, my goodness, you know, to have this testimony of behavior in the church is detrimental to the testimony of Jesus. And we're going to learn even even more today how important that is for us, that when we say we believe something, when we say that we are in Christ, that our behavior, our actions back up what we say we believe. Now, all of that is always under the umbrella of the truth that we are sinners, we are saved by God's grace, he has been merciful to us, and our sins are forgiven. And in fact, that's what Paul is focusing on and talking about here in this section of Scripture. And so let's take a look at what Paul says. He's already referred to this uh, church and the fact that there has been this misbehavior, this sexual perversion that has taken place, inappropriate sexual relationship, and it hasn't been judged or corrected. And here's what he says in verse six, your boasting is not good. There is an arrogance in the church there, and we surmised on Wednesday that perhaps it came from this position of being in a very worldly city, in a very metropolitan place, where they perhaps, the Christians, had this desire to be seen as accepting or tolerant even. That's not a word they would have used, but it's one that we understand in our day and age, that there is a push for Christians who have historically taken this stand against things that God says are sinful and yet have compromised them for the, for the purpose of the larger culture looking upon us and going, no, they're okay. They're all right in what they believe, looking for acceptance. That is not healthy. In fact, all throughout scripture, God's people were viewed as a peculiar people a strange people, not in the sense of they're weird and they do weird things, although there was that perception at times, but they are a people who are just different. They, you know, if the world's going this way, Christians sort of go this way. They just do the opposite of what the world accepts as good and normal. And what happens is when the church, those who are in Christ, begin going down that road, eventually 
they can get to a place where the world even looks at them, unsaved people look at Christians and go, we wouldn't even want to do that. Here in this church, it was sexual perversion, uh, inappropriate sexual behavior that the world pagans looked at them and said, we wouldn't even touch that. That's not something we do. But you know, one of the things in our day and age, and something that has come up that I've experienced and unfortunately has, have had to deal with, is that there are times that in the church, there are behaviors that are just sort of built in and almost accepted as normal with sort of a wink, wink and sort of a brush off of, well, we're still sinners saved by grace. And yet the world looks at the church and, and looks at certain behaviors and just goes, man, we don't want to have anything to do with that. And that's sort of the context that we find ourselves in here. But the world has looked at the church and went, that's not even something we would touch. What Paul says here in this very first verse, in verse 6 that we're looking at today, he says, your boasting is not good. You've accepted this sin in the church. You haven't rebuked it. You haven't pushed it out and purged it from amongst yourself. In fact, you seem to be arrogant about it and proud of it. He says, your boasting is not good. And then he gets into it. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul takes this situation in the church where there's just this tragic, ungodly sin, this horrible example that's, that's being given out into the world around them. And he says, man, this stuff needs to just be put away from you. You need to be cleansed of these things. And Paul makes three sort of uh, statements in these several verses here in regard to, to what the church is supposed to be aware of. First of all, he says that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. He's making this, uh, he's using this picture or this metaphor of a lump of dough and yeast, which causes the chemical reaction of, of rising. You know, they call it letting the dough proof. And that's where the glutens are created and where the dough gets all, all, you know, sort of the dough gets strong and spongy and all that kind of stuff that it's supposed to do to create a good loaf of bread. He says, don't you know that, that a little bit of leaven leavens the, leavens the whole lump? There's this reaction that takes place. And then he makes reference to the old lump. He says, cleanse out the old leaven, rather, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. And he brings up this imagery of the old and the new, which is all throughout the New Testament. In fact, is, is sort of the entire premise of salvation. He would later on say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, and therefore, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. This whole idea of being saved from our sins, forgiven of our sins, Jesus as our Savior, our Master, our Lord, it's that we are then new creations. The old man, is the language, has been put to death. The old person that was dominated and controlled by sin is put away, and we are a new creation with Jesus as our Master. 
And then finally, Paul uses the, the, the imagery or the idea here of the Passover and that festival that celebrated the angel of death passing over God's people because the blood of that sacrificial lamb was applied to their households. So all of this is being spoken of in the context of purging or cleansing out this leaven. And so what does leaven represent in the Bible? I was studying this and, and uh, asked Carly, I said, hey, babe, when I say leaven in a biblical sense, it's the only sense that we really use it in, leaven, what does that represent? She just answered back very quickly, sin. That's what we've always traditionally been taught or what we've heard is that leaven represents sin. Interesting thing though, when you study the Bible, you get to experience depths of truth beyond just things that you have heard, which may or may not be true. Again, we're to be people who search out the scriptures to see the things, see if what we've been taught, if what we've heard is true. See, there's a much more nuanced answer. There's a much more um, specific answer in regard to that question of leaven. What's it a picture of? What's, a, what's it a metaphor for in the Christian life? Well, if we look at just the New Testament to begin with, we'll talk about the Old Testament in a second, but if we just begin with the New Testament, we start with Jesus and Jesus' own words. Jesus talked about leaven, and here's how he referred, referred to it. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 33, Jesus speaks out one of these parables, one of these uh, spiritual stories that represents something. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, where a woman took leaven and placed it into a lump of, three lumps of dough, in fact, and, and, and how, until it spreads through all the lumps of dough. Jesus speaks about leaven, but it's not in reference to sin at all. In fact, it's the opposite of that. Jesus speaks about leaven in the positive sense, about the kingdom of heaven and how it infects dough. That's the idea, is how it works its way through a lump of dough. And then later on in Matthew 16, beginning in verse 6, Jesus again speaks about leaven, but from a different perspective. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, as often was the case when Jesus said that, his listeners, specifically the disciples, were like, well, what is, what is he talking about bread for? You know, the leaven being referenced to uh, yeast in a dough creating a loaf of bread. And they're like, what is he talking about bread for? And eventually Jesus has to, as he often does, explain that what he's warning his disciples about are the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He referred to their teachings as leaven. And then in Mark chapter 8, verse 15, a parallel accounting of this, not only did he mention the Pharisees, but he also mentioned being aware of and wary of Herod, the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And what he's making reference to is their authority. Be careful about their authority over you. And then finally, in Luke chapter 12, verse 1, he begins to be very specific about what he means about being aware of the Pharisee, the leaven of the Pharisees in regard to their teachings. He begins to be very specific and he refers to the teachings of the Pharisees and their hypocrisy. The leaven there is very specific, talking about their hypocrisy. 
saying one thing, laying a heavy burden religiously on people, and then behaving in a completely different way. So when we see this and how, and how leaven is used in these examples in the New Testament, we understand that it's not just a simplistic reference to sin, although it can lead to that. Leaven is used as a reference to influence. Whether that be positive influence, leaven like the kingdom of heaven, and how that's supposed to work its way into us as followers of Jesus, his church, or it could be negative influence, the teachings of people who are living hypocritically, or the heavy-handed authority that they're attempting to place on you. There's this, this understanding that the leaven isn't just simply sin, but the influence that leads to sin. And that's an important distinction for us to understand. That it's not always just one specific sin that is being called out. It's the things that lead to sin. Stop and take that in for a moment. Now, the Old Testament reference to leaven very much has to do with that celebration of the Passover in that story of Moses leading the, the God's people, the nation of Israel, out of the captivity of Egypt and, and the dominance of Pharaoh and their slavery there in Egypt, God instructed them to bake this bread without any leaven, without any yeast. Why? What was the purpose of that? It definitely wasn't for flavor purposes. I'm not sure if you've ever actually eaten unleavened bread. When I was a kid, we actually uh, used unleavened bread a couple times as we were celebrating the Passover. It ain't the tastiest thing in the world. There's, you know, even if you are someone who needs to live gluten-free, I, I feel you. I feel sorry for you. It's good. Gluten's good. It makes things taste good <laughs> as far as bread is concerned. But the reason that God said to do that was because they didn't have any time. It was an issue of time. They were going to be on the run, heading out of Egypt, heading towards the, the place that God had prepared for them. And so they didn't have time to let the dough proof to rise up with the yeast and have it activate and do its thing in the dough. And so God had them bake these loaves of bread without it. And then subsequently, as they would celebrate the remembrance of this Passover, the sacrificial lamb, the blood being applied to their household so that the angel of death would pass over them, they would remember by, breaking, by, by baking that bread again for the celebration of that festival without yeast in it. It was a reminder to God's people of God's freedom, the release from captivity that he had provided for them. It became this, this remembrance. Now, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You see, Paul here, in addressing sexual immorality in the church, is not just making a moral argument. He's not just saying, I don't approve of your behavior because it makes me feel uncomfortable. He's not making a moral argument. He's making a salvation argument. When Paul says that, man, you need to, you need to turn this one over to Satan, this one who's unrepentant about his sin, he needs to be removed from among you. He needs to be turned over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It's not a moral argument. It's not a moral issue. It's a salvation issue. And Paul is drawing here in verses 6 through 8, he is drawing on all three of these references 
in his teaching. Jesus saying that the kingdom of heaven, God's economy, is supposed to be what is permeating you as followers of Jesus, not the influence of the world. He says you're, not, you're no longer that old man. You're no longer dominated by sin when you're in Christ. You're a new creation in Christ. You need to throw out the old leaven, the old influences, because you're a new lump. You're a new creation in Christ. And then he says you're supposed to celebrate. You're supposed to celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We're supposed to remind ourselves constantly of this freedom from sin and the influences that lead to sin when we're in Christ. And he says to these Corinthians, remember that he has called them saints, brothers and sisters in Christ, he calls them to not allow the influence of the world, the influence of the flesh, the old man, sin, to permeate and grow within their fellowship, but rather to remember Jesus in what he did for us in his sacrificial death, our Passover celebration, remembering what Jesus died for, our sacrificial lamb that allows us to have this new life, to be new creations, a new lump, as he says. And some of us look more like lumps than others, and that's okay. <laughs> but that we're supposed to allow God's kingdom, godly principles and godly values to permeate our fellowship, just like Jesus said the kingdom of God would. Growing, spreading, cross-pollinating, if you will, influencing each other with this remembrance of rescue from captivity to the world, our freedom from sin through Jesus, our sacrificial lamb. We are to influence each other and thereby produce the works of God in the fellowship of the church so that it becomes an example for the world outside. You know, we are called to be a peculiar people, a different people. The church is supposed to have influence. The church, in fact, you know, when you look at it historically, the church has been the, the organization or the entity in the world that has been the movers and shakers historically. It's only recently in the last, um, you know, couple of generations that the church has really started, started to lose its influence on the culture around us. And that's a sad thing. We have to be a people who engage in the culture in a way that brings the message of Christ and the message of salvation into everything, into public policy, into community activity, into artistic expression and creation, into even competition and what that looks like that we're striving for, the high mark that is set for us in Jesus Christ. All of those activities that we participate in in this world are to be marked by our identity in Jesus Christ. And so then Paul says here in verse 8, Let us therefore celebrate that festival, remembering Jesus Christ, our Passover, not with the old leaven, not with the influence of things in the world that would lead us towards sin, the leaven of, and he defines it, the leaven of malice 
and evil. Now, malice, you know, when we think about it, it, it think, how I think about it, it's just something dark and foreboding and sort of scary and, and synonymous with the word evil. But the word malice actually has the definition of the intention to behave immorally. That's what malice is. Immoral behavior includes things that are dark and, and, and destructive, things like murder, right? But it also includes malicious intent and, and malicious behavior. It includes things like sexual immorality. And that's what Paul's addressing directly in the church. So he says we're not supposed to uh, celebrate the Passover with the old leaven, the leaven of malice, which is the intention to behave immorally, and the, the, the leaven of evil, the presence of sin in our lives, but rather we're supposed to celebrate that Passover remembrance of Jesus with sincerity and truth, the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. These are the, the guardrails, if you will, for the life of someone following after the way of Jesus, sincerity and truth. To be sincere doesn't mean just to be honest or serious about the thing that you're saying. Sincerity means, by definition, to be free from hypocrisy. Living what we say we believe. And that was the warning that Jesus issued about the teachings of the Pharisees. He says, beware of the, of the leaven of the Pharisees, specifically referring to their teachings and their hypocrisy. Saying one thing, laying a burden upon someone, and then justifying their actions, which are the opposite of what they were teaching. To be sincere means to actually live out what you believe, to not be a hypocrite. That's a huge one for us. As Christians, man, we need to be people that if we say we believe in Jesus, if we say we're a new creation in Christ, we celebrate our Passover lamb, Jesus, who sacrificed himself for us so that we could live without the guilt of sin and shame, then we, by virtue of that ownership that Jesus has over our lives, we need to live in such a way that we are obedient to God's commands with the understanding that we are loved and that we have his unfailing grace upon our lives and that we live not according to our strength, but by his spirit. So we're called to celebrate the Passover of Jesus with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And man, I love this scripture. This is one of my favorites and I've quoted it many times, but in John 17, beginning in verse 17, Jesus in his prayer to the father says this, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. You know, we as people who are in Jesus, we've been sent out into the world. And we're to be set apart, sanctified in the truth. And Jesus is very specific as he prays to the Father. He says, your word is truth. We are to be people in Christ who are set apart from the world. Our behavior, our thought process, how we treat one another is supposed to be different than the way the world behaves because it's to be defined for us how we behave by God's word. It's the authority for us. It tells us how we're supposed to act. 
and where we see in our lives the influence of the world, and it doesn't match up with Scripture. We're not to be people who say, oh, well, God will forgive me. He knows my heart. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. That's true, but that's not how we're supposed to be pursuing Jesus. We're supposed to be celebrating the Passover by being a people who are different, set apart from the world because of God's word. Now, all this being true, as Paul rebukes the church and even gives instructions to, to kick someone out of the church because of their unrepentant sinful behavior, the question kind of looms over that whole situation and goes, well, why, why doesn't Paul just kick them all out of the church? Why doesn't he just shut the whole thing down and start all over again, perhaps? Why doesn't he go there in person and deal with those issues? Now, he threatens to do so, of course. But here's the thing Paul says. I, I want you to remember back what we read here in these scriptures, 1 Corinthians 5. In verse 7, he says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. You're a new creation in Christ. And here's what it says. As you really are unleavened. Paul is talking about the ongoing work in our lives. We're supposed to pursue perfection. Follow after Paul's example. As he follows after Jesus' example. Our identity is in Christ. We're new creations. We don't live according to the standards of the world, but according to the standards of God's kingdom. That's the thing that's supposed to be influencing us. And we're supposed to look different, be sanctified, all of those things. But what he says there in verse 7 is, cleanse out the old leaven. What's the indication? That sometimes that stuff is still there. It's still sitting sort of in the background of who we are. And it's a constant process of us purging it, cleansing it out. That's the whole idea of confession and repentance. When we discover there's something in our heart, in our mind that goes, that doesn't match up with my new identity in Christ, we're supposed to simply identify it, confess it, and then repent of it and say, God, I don't want to act that way. I want this to be my standard for how I live. And so we repent. We turn away from those things. We cleanse ourselves of those things over and over and over again in the blood of Jesus. So it was sacrificed for those sins over and over and over again. And he says, as you really are unleavened. Again, this is a reference to these people at Corinth that while they had some messed up ideas, they had some messed up behaviors, they really were unleavened. They were members of the body of Christ. They were saints. They had been saved by Jesus. But there's this ongoing process of needing to confess and repent of sin. Remember, repent, and repeat. That's what I was taught long time ago. Remember that Jesus died for my sins. Repent of those sins and then just keep repeating that process over and over and over. Now, I quote Charles Spurgeon quite often, perhaps too often, but he's one of those guys in the history of the church that just seemed to just have a, uh, I don't know, a double dose of blessing in terms of being able to comprehend God's word and be able to just make statements that just help illuminate the truth of what God has taught us in the scriptures. And so I want to end today just with a couple of quotes from Charles Spurgeon that just sort of inspired my heart as I was considering this truth as we were studying it. Spurgeon would say, as great as my sins have been, they are not so great as God's love. In Jeremiah 31.3, God speaks out to his people of which at the time he was speaking to the nation of Israel, but understand that in Christ, all the prophecies 
have been fulfilled. That we are God's people in Christ Jesus. And in Jeremiah 31.3, he says this, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Man, that feels really good to hear. It's a good thing to know that God loves you and he loves me with an everlasting love. Now, God goes on and defines what that love looks like. It looks like obedience. And when we're disobedient, God even says he scourges the one that he loves. He corrects and disciplines the ones that he loves so that we might experience that love more fully in our obedience to him. But as great as your sins might be, Remember that they're not even close to the love that God has for you. The last quote I'll leave you with is this. Spurgeon says, you are often sinning, but God is always forgiving. As much as we might sin, as much as we might feel that we are distant from God because of this sin that separates us, we might come to seasons of our life where we can just say, I don't know what happened. I've gone off the rails. I haven't been living in sincerity. I'm a hypocrite. I haven't been living in regard to the truth that I know in Jesus Christ. I've been living according to my standards and the things that I think are important. My own pleasure. And even though we might be sinning often, God is always forgiving. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins then God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all all unrighteousness. (laughs) If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Man, God is good to us. We desire to be washed in the blood of Jesus, cleansed of our sins, knowing that the rest of our life here on earth may be a struggle at times. We fight against the flesh. But the truth is, is that we are new creations in Christ. We're a new lump. And we are to be people who constantly cleanse ourselves, ourselves individually, but in the church as well cleanse out the influences of the world, that we push away the ideals that the world thinks are good and right and true, and we hold for ourselves as our influence, the thing that that influences us and that reacts amongst us, that creates in us a sanctified people who look different than the world, and the things that dictate that for us are quite simply Jesus. Jesus and God's word. Those are the things that that create in us this life, this new life that he has promised us. And as we take that truth with us and we continue to meditate on it and and, uh, consider it for the sake of being a people who aren't hypocrites, who the world looks at and goes, there's something there. There's something different from the way that we look. They they treat each other differently. That's something that I want to be a part of. We are to be winsome people. We are to do our best to convince people of the truth of who Jesus is. 
A huge part of that is the way that we live in fellowship with one another. And so we want to follow Jesus and his example. We want to live in a way that allows him to be in control, that he would lead us. You know, we're not going to do communion together here, but um, this week I would encourage you to find some time, perhaps even by yourself, to stop and, and remember the sacrifice of Jesus, our Passover lamb, and celebrate. Maybe it's with your family or, or someone else, or it, maybe it's just by yourself that you stop and, and celebrate that Passover feast, and that you remember what Jesus did for you. Maybe you purge out, cleanse out some old leaven, some old influences in your life that have led you into sinful places. Perhaps you just confess and repent of some things in your heart or in your mind that you know aren't in line with God's word and his will for you. I encourage you to do that this week. As for us and the rest of our time, we'll sing out a little bit more and glorify God and praise Jesus in song. But my prayer for us this week is that we would understand our fellowship and what it is that inspires us and influences us. That it is Jesus, our Passover lamb, Word of God.